If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Children can be raised to believe that harm is common and repair is possible. We don't have to defend our perfect record at all costs. We don't have to earn approval by never screwing up. We can die and rise. Becca McNeil. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today we're talking with Becca McNeil. Becca's a writer, reporter, mom of two, native to San Antonio, Texas, and her work has appeared in Christianity Today, the San Antonio Current, and many, many other outlets. Her book, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, just came out in the fall, I believe. And so we're really, really excited to talk to Becca today. You guys are all going to want to buy this book by the end of our interview. So thank you for being here, Becca. I'm so excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. We have a lot of a lot we want to talk to you about. Can you give us just an idea of what your day looks like, what your family looks like, and then kind of outside of some of the day-to-day stuff, what makes your heart come alive? So my family is me and my husband. We have been married for 13 years, and my eight-year-old daughter, who will be nine very soon, and my six-year-old son. They both go to a public school down the street. Mm -hmm. So we have a very, like, we're living the dream as far as our routine. We takes us a minute and a half to get to school, Mm -hmm. a minute and a half to get home. So we get to maximize. We don't have to spend a lot of time in the car. I work from home. My husband works very close. So we have kind of a small nutshell of a world that actually we love. The kids are both in the exploring phase of trying to figure out activities that they like. So pretty much every nine weeks, we like shuffle it up and try whatever random thing. We live in San Antonio and it's a big enough city that when my son wanted to try blacksmithing, we could try blacksmithing. When my daughter wants to try theater or whatever, we can, theater's a little harder, but whenever they have quirky interests, we can usually find something. Hmm. And so we're in this really fun stage of, I get to work during the day because they're safely off at school. And then in the afternoons, we do something kind of random and new every day. That's our daily routine. I'm a pretty rigid routine person in my own work. And like my bedtime routine is the stuff of a therapist dreams. I'm very like regimented about my bedtime and relaxing and full sensory like I have my work candle and my bedtime candle. I'm very, <laughs> I'm, I have some OCD tendencies and I'm trying to use them for the best. <laughs> and then what makes my heart come alive is any time and y'all, you and your audience, by virtue of the fact that 
you're people who are thinking about things and raising children. Any chance that I can fully invest in a deep conversation mm. about things that are transpersonal, not just, I love bonding. I love spending time with my friends, but when we can get into a conversation about big things, things that are universal or theoretical, those kind of conversations to fully dig in and go from beginning to end, which you know, as you're, if you're a parent, is difficult because <laughs> most of your life is interrupted. And when you're with your adult people, you're like trying to vomit everything yeah. out into one because you're trying to catch up. And yesterday, even I went and spent some time with friends uh, in another city, just drove over to celebrate a birthday. And we just had the adults for the day. And I was like, oh, this is like I was sitting in the carpool, their kids carpool pickup line with them for 45 minutes. And we had this like incredible conversation Mm -hmm. about the topic of is Republican control of Texas inevitable for the next generation (laughs) and getting to have that theoretical, but important conversation from start to finish to the point where we, at the end, we were like, yeah, I guess at that point, you just have to wait and see. And when you can get a conversation to that point, <laughs> yes. to where you're like, yeah, we've talked about it all. In the pickup line, parents are amazing. The things that we squeeze in right. to like the most unlikely places, it's yes. pretty incredible. It is. My oldest daughter and I, she is a mom herself. And we can be talking about the fact that her little kid is not sleeping in his bed one minute. And then the next minute, we're like, what do you think about gun control? Yeah. And then we just try to solve these major issues in our Mm -hmm. conversation. And then we'll go right back to like, hey, are we having like soup weekend? It's just. (laughs) I love it. I know. It's really. Yes. People joke about like, well, if only everybody would listen to us. And I'm like, I love to solve the world's problems. It's my favorite thing to do. Well, that's what we're hoping to do today. Excellent. Let's fix it. Let's solve them from begin. Let's solve We've all got of them. 45 minutes. What can we? That's uh... all we need. We're moms. <laughs> we can, can be we efficient. Solve? Yeah. Yeah. So, Becca, if you had to describe your faith background, like the mm-hmm. way you grew up, in one word or one phrase, what would it be? Heavily controlled. Mm. And that's not super poetic, but that's what yeah. it was. Do you feel like that has played into your OCD diagnosis? I have OCD as well. Yes. And there's definitely some correlations. Oh, yes. Scrupulosity is the word that came up with my therapist, a like moral OCD. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to keep, as you guys know, with brain stuff, it's it's hard to keep a way of thinking in one area. So like my moral scrupulosity and my need to like check with all sorts of spiritual authorities. And then when you lose spiritual authority, check with all of like Twitter to see if this is an okay opinion to have. (laughs) Like my life only got more complicated having that over-controlled OCD scrupulosity as a child Mm. that, you know, having that fostered and encouraged as a kid, then you deconstruct and lose your one simple authority that you used to go to, to check everything. Mm. And you're like, Oh shit, now I have to check with everybody. Yes. Right. Yes. And and now my life is miserable. So 
Yes, I think it is tightly tied to that. I because I have siblings who were raised the same way and they are not OCD. They are the opposite. But my I'm firstborn. I'm naturally kind of peace loving. And yeah, that pressure and that control definitely led to the need to check. And now, you know, and so now I also have to check the lock nine times at night too. Right. So my oldest daughter, she is very much like you. She had something called compulsive confession. She's come on our podcast and talked about it. Yes. And she's now a teacher. She has such a heart for those kids that have that scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. And she had so much OCD. And believe it or not, I was the authority figure that she mm. always had to check in with. Yeah. Constantly. So I was her regulating device. I had this thought, is this okay? Mm-hmm. I thought that the bus driver was fat. Is that okay? I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. That was actually one of the beginnings of my deconstruction journey was thinking this is so harmful to this kid. Yeah. And like, I think about you like, oh my gosh, it is horrible. Like I just feel everything for you. I was just about to say I was a confessor. I didn't always confess my thoughts. I did a lot of journaling and confessing to God and kind of like working it through to the place where I could get okay with it. My obsessing was a little more heavy than my compulsions. Mm. Yeah. My senior year of high school, you know, went too far with my boyfriend or whatever. I like made myself confess to my poor parents who were like, you know, we don't, we don't need <laughs> you're like, we don't need the details. Exactly what happened moment by moment. Confession. I literally was like, yeah. here's yeah. everything. And my mom was like, hey, babe, you know what? We trust you. <laughs> we don't need to know. What was your main moral OCD surrounding. There was some purity culture stuff in there, but I was purity culture didn't harm me like in the classic ways that many people talk about it. I my parents were very strict, but they also kind of inherently wanted us to eventually have a healthy sex life. And I think they were like, you can't talk to kids about sex like that. Sex is awesome. (laughs) And so like, fortunately they were children of the seventies and were able to be like, that's not true. (laughs) They would say things that, you know, they had some of the messaging, but that wasn't the main thing. The story that best illustrates the moral OCD that I still struggle with. And mine was pretty nasty because it was a need you know, God sees all or whatever. And so with God as my regulator, it's impossible to get to the bottom of. And so I remember being 17 years old and sitting with my best friend, sobbing my eyes out because I couldn't not feel any kind of pride. So I was like, as soon as I think I've gotten it, then I feel proud. I was kind of the Martin Luther. I had a very Martin Luther-ish tendency. If you're familiar with his inner demons, like, even my repenting needs repenting of and mm. his like self-flagellation and wormness. Mm. Like all of that comes mm. from the young restless reform bros, the Mark Driscoll crowd back when that was happening. Just basically, uh-huh. I think took a lot of Martin Luther's mental illness and made it into like, they kind of made it into like a dick measuring contest mm. of how bad can I feel about myself? Yeah. And so, coming of age in the middle of all of that mine was like a 
I'm not feeling depraved enough. I'm not feeling sinful enough. I'm not confessing deeply enough. And so it was like this race to the bottom constantly. And so I developed a lot of OCD tendencies on like, I'm feeling something. I need to check it with confession and then condemnation. I need to condemn Uh, that. I need to condemn that. Yeah. So I'm a real fun person to be around. Oh my gosh. I feel like you're saying things that I kind of forgot about myself. <laughs> like, I know there was some OCD stuff. I know there was like self-punishment stuff, whatever. And now I'm like, oh shit. Like, this is all so true of me when I think back to my younger years and God is my regulator and mm-hmm. this chronic confession. Like, mm. it's so harmful. It makes me so, so sad. Like, so, so sad. Yeah. And not to switch gears, because this is so interesting, but how has that changed, right, to <laughs> now? Like, how would you describe your faith now in a word or a phrase? Yeah, uh, it's losing control. It was literally things getting out of control. The beautiful part of that was that a lot of it began with love. It began with going to graduate school I went to the London School of Economics, which is my first non-Christian school post-adolescence. And I just loved people. I loved my professors and hearing them talk and the the people that they cared about and my love for the world and seeing other cultures and just starting to feel this like, I can't condemn this. So that was like the external. And then my husband, when I met my husband, it was the first person who had loved me that didn't also subscribe to that kind Mm of worm theology. I don't want to say first person. I always had, God was kind enough to always have a lifeline. I think there was, I always had a friend or a mentor or somebody in the orbit. And it was usually just one person at a time who was my like person saying like, you're not a worm. Mm. you're you're a beloved child of god or you're fine or let's just go to get some lunch my best friend in high school my mentor in college Mm. like i had this one rogue writing professor at the master's college who they like put his classes a half a mile off campus because he was so like unpredictable (laughs) and um it was awesome it was like this this little safe haven in the middle of a very toxic environment and (laughs) It's because he he was just wonderful. And then, but then in graduate school, there was this like opening up. And then I married this man. I was in the PCA, which didn't allow Mm. women to be ordained, but I was Mm. trying to like build this ministry career. And my husband was the one who was like, you're worth more than this. Like Mm. it was his love for me that gave me finally like the, the self-worth the journey grows to being like that shouldn't have to come from someone else, but you know, baby steps, you know, we are made for some level of community and there is a helpfulness of other people being able to say, Hey, that's not really true of you. Mm -hmm. So that when I was having the condemnation echoed by people who benefited from it, pastors, employers, whatever, my husband could interrupt it and say, that's not actually true. You need to stick up for yourself. And when you stick up for yourself, then it all falls apart. The big struggle was that early on, I like things tied up in neat packages. I like my theology very orderly and things were coming loose 
and I didn't have a way to tie them up. And I had to really learn to just be like, I don't know about that yet, but I know being um, queer affirming is probably the best example of like, I knew I had to be affirming before I had the biblical stuff to support it. Yeah. So when we are put in an environment where everything is completely controlled and everything is black and white or we're raised that way, it doesn't really allow us to move into those places like normal children of curiosity and wonder and questions. But as as soon as you get to the teenage years where you're really starting to push back or question or whatever, you're shut down as a rebellious teenager or you don't dare you. And then that kind of continues to go on in a toxic religious system where the second you question or you have an idea that's different than the powers that be, you're labeled rebellious. And then that for you as a person who has scrupulosity, (laughs) that's like the most mean thing you could ever say to somebody. Yeah. In our denomination, it was unteachable. Oh yes. There it is. I still, I had a, just like a an ed- editor who was like, you're being really unflexible and unteachable about this. And I was like, y'all, I'm 39 years old. And I had this childlike, mm-hmm. like, okay, whatever you want, mm-hmm, you can, mm-hmm. okay, I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And the thing is like, I'm being unteachable because I'm right. <laughs> right. I'm choosing to be unteachable. This is my I book. know this. this. My, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you're being unteachable. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, I went and did this research. <laughs> that attitude to even say, like, I'm not being arrogant. I'm being correct. Hmm. And, I mean, I think my dad's head would have exploded. And I'll say that stuff to him now. And he's still kind of like, that's a really off-putting attitude. But I'm like, you know. What you going to do right. now? Back then it would have, you know, I have stories in the book about what happened. Right. Yeah. As children, like we kind of knew more than we know as adults, like we like unteach ourselves things. Right. And so we know all these things when we're younger and then we're sort of untaught them. And then we grow up and we have to kind of like go back and reparent ourselves. Right. I grew up in a PCA church as well. I remember there was this woman, I I babysat for her kids. It was a horrible situation. Died of cancer really young, had a really just horrible cancer journey. I'm watching this play out in the church, right? And everyone's just like thankful to God for, you know, relieving her pain and death and, you know, all of these like beautiful sentiments, right? I'm 12 and I'm like, she's a baby and a three-year-old and she's Mm, dying. mm, And mm, we are mm, watching mm. her die. She's in a wheelchair. She's at church every Sunday and everyone's like, she still comes to worship God and she is dying. Mm-hmm. And as a young person, right, I'm like, this is not right. This is messed up. Mm-hmm. We know these things. We have these sort of like human understanding that we minimize because we're told like, eh, this isn't right. Or like, you need to be more like us because we've had 40 years of knowledge, right? And you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, but I think you went the wrong direction. Like, <laughs> it's not well, right. Is it 40 years of knowledge or is it 40 years of conditioning? And Ooh. that's the thing is that like. <laughs> Mic drop. (laughs) Say that again. (laughs) Because yes, wisdom comes with age, but so have a lot of compromises. Yes. I was sitting in a book club last night. The oldest person in the book club was 94 Hmm. and I was the youngest. And there was every probably five years in between represented. 
And we're talking about the book Lessons in Chemistry, which talks about a woman's experience as a chemist in the 60s. Amazing trove of wisdom. Incredible. But a perfect opportunity to look at how some of the women were like, look, guys, we supported some of these patriarchal things because we had, you know, we were going along to get along. We had to make compromises. Mm -hmm. And there was this big discussion about surviving systems versus overthrowing them and the compromises that women had to make Mm -hmm. in order to have a career or to have a home, like a secure place to live or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so I think there's definitely that when you talk about what kids know, like kids are just more instinctual. And that curiosity piece, one of the things that early on, as I was deconstructing, I was thinking about how integral question asking, curiosity, creativity, Mm -hmm. exploration, how important all those things are to learning and the arts. So the academy and the arts. And those were the two big like boogeymen growing up in like culture war PCA era was, you know, science and arts and the godless Hollywood and all this stuff. And I realized, I think a lot of that comes from the inherent values that are necessary. You have to question authority. And like, that's the biggest headbutting thing with a very authority based system. Mm -hmm. And that's been all the way back to Galileo and Spinoza and all of these people back in medieval times, all of this headbutting between progress and authority. Authority says, I'm in charge. And so I want to keep it this way. Progress says, hey, we're going to discover some new things and that might change who's in charge Yes, and what we think we know. And our children are wired. All of the best research and child development stuff that i looked at to write my book talks about a children are wired for that. Their, their brains are making connections. They're asking why the classic, why, why, why that's all part of a natural curiosity that then Mm -hmm. they go through seasons where that prunes down and their kids get easier when they're in elementary school and start to just kind of go with the program. And then it blossoms again in adolescence Mm -hmm. And all of that is messed with if you are fighting it and treating it as a moral issue instead of Mm -hmm. a developmental issue, Mm -hmm. you know, treating it as rebellion rather than exploration. Yes. (laughs) And also curiosity is one of any therapist will tell you is one of the inherent features of a healthy adult psyche, curiosity, compassion. There's like the five C's or something like that. And I just thought, we only gave ourselves moral language to explain the human right. experience. Right. And that meant that every interaction with like with us as children was couched in these moral terms. And that to me created huge wounds between me and my parents about acceptance and rejection mm-hmm. because if it was immoral, it had to be cast out. And that's, I mean, heaven and hell to me is the language of acceptance, rejection. And Mm. so anyway, when I was deciding how to raise my kids, the number one thing was I need more language than just moral language because it was the moralizing of things that were developmentally appropriate 
there's a section in the book I called developmentally appropriate sins. The moralizing of nature Mm -hmm. is harmful. It, it causes us to draw these boundary lines and people end up on the outside of them. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Beth Mogstadt, Susan Hammerly, and Jennifer Keith. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. And now back to the episode. I heard you say something about how it creates an environment of a battle against our children. And I think it was in line with the word obey. I think you said something about obey means that there is a battle. This child is bad and we are good. If obedience is the highest standard for children. Yeah. What would you say is a different way that we can approach our kids than obedience? Yeah. Well, yeah. Growing up, obeying was all that was asked of us. And my parents were pretty explicit about that. I appreciate that my parents did not have a 50 point list. Like we didn't have the long list of household rules, but the rule was absolute cheerful obedience at whatever arbitrary decision we have made on this issue today. So we traded rigidity for total inconsistency and I think a certain amount of inconsistency within limits is fine if you're negotiable about it because Mm -hmm. you can't be arbitrary and absolute at the same time. So like we had, maybe we will get to watch this rated R movie, but if, if they say no, yes, sir. Thank you very much. Don't, don't argue. Maybe we will get to play soccer on a Sunday, but if we don't, you don't get to argue with it. Mm -hmm. It was a wild ride. So The James Dobson model of raising kids openly frames the parent-child relationship as a battle that the parent has to win. That like your child's sin nature and your role as the parent are in constant opposition and it is a struggle. I fully subscribed to the advice to pick your battles, but I wish we didn't even use the term battles, <laughs> like pick the area where you really want to focus, see a focus, like pick your yeah. focus or whatever. Yeah, I still use the term pick your battles because it's easy, but even that indicates this like parent child war that's going mm. on. And it can feel that way. But if you also then have the meta narrative going on, that this is part of a bigger war against their sin nature, All of the little disagreements over whether or not I can have two cookies or just one feels way too big. Mm -hmm. It's too big. That escalates the parent's reaction because I'm feeling now this huge moral weight and I can't just be like, oh, fine, have to, whatever, you know, (laughs) which is the the normal tired parent response. (laughs) Instead, it's a, I said no. And if you don't learn to submit to me, if you don't learn to obey me, you'll never learn how to obey God. Now it's an issue of your soul, not just your glucose level. And the amount of stress that puts on parents and children, there's no way you can, well, not, I don't want to say no way, plenty of parents and children have healthy relationships, but it's really making it hard to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. When you grow up under that kind of parenting 
and then you try to make the shift with your own kids because I know so many of us experience that and now are making that kind of shift it's so hard to not pop back into that response as a parent that you got as a child right to not pop mm-hmm. back to the pl- that place of being like well you must listen to me and then you're like wait why do they need to listen to me like is this really important wait what is this about why am i trying to be right like you know yeah. like, you go back yeah. like, wait a second this doesn't make any sense for what i actually want to do as a parent or whatever and there's been this whole shift i think generationally too that so many people are doing this differently Um, And we're all kind of like, I don't really know how, but we're just trying. It does seem to me, for my own experience with raising my kids, that that was my greatest fear. My kids Mm. will not be in control. And for some Mm. reason, God was in control. And so I should be in control. And that's why they should obey. And when they were disobedient, quote unquote, my insides felt out of control. So I wonder if some of what Liz is even asking there is, as you're trying a new way to parent, and I I didn't start to deconstruct until my kids were teenagers when, when it all just feels like completely out of control, but that was a beautiful realization that it's only an illusion anyway. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you don't yeah. have control, but the fight to try to maintain had much more to do with me feeling out of control and my dysregulation than actually what was going on with my kids, but somehow I could pull out the God card. Like I remember saying to my husband, we finished our basement and I was like, you know what? Uh, We're going to leave this open. So when I walk downstairs, I can see if they're like having sex on the couch. Like (laughs) I wanted to make sure that I could walk down and I knew I would assess the situation immediately to maintain some kind of control. They wouldn't dare do it if they knew I could just pop in at any minute. Yeah, deterrent. (laughs) Kind of like that weird God thing, like God's watching you and I'm watching you. And it was more because, oh my gosh, I don't want to, this would make me feel like I'm a terrible parent if my kids are just having sex in my basement, which where does that even come from? It's put on parents. The first few chapters of my book are basically like, here's, here are centuries of concerted effort put into making you feel this stressed out about this. Like here's the whole history of how we ended up needing to be in control and needing this certainty in order to function. Another story about how it's more for, more for me, uh, Cindy Wong Brandt, she talks a lot about like where you felt most out of control as a child is where you'll feel most out of control is it when your kids do it. And for me, that was around expressions of anger. Yeah. Um, we were not allowed to be angry. Mm-hmm. It was seen as rebellious. You know, even the expression of I'm angry about this was you just didn't do it. So being a household where I want my children to have access to the full range of their emotions, I don't want them to do the destructive things that I used to do to hide my anger. And at the same time, I have both dispositionally and as a result of the way I was raised, huge anger issues have had explosive temper stuff, had been in tons of therapy for it. I thought I was managing it well until I had my, my second child knows how to just push the buttons. He's, he is engineered (laughs) as a perfect, like he just knows it by heart, how to like, he is also has a fiery temper or whatever. And so we started going to visit with he and I both with a therapist to get tools to manage 
not putting him in therapy per se, but he and I both wanted to just visit with someone who could say, Hey, why don't y'all try this? Like coaching and loved it. It was great. And in the middle of that process, we were playing one day and I grabbed this stuffed sloth that we have and I made it make a little voice and he like lit up and was suddenly very compassionate toward the sloth. And I had the sloth say like, it's time to go downstairs and put on our shoes or something. And he was like, okay. And was really sweet to the sloth and was like, I don't know if it like released oxytocin because it's really cute and cuddly or what, but he really responded to it. And so this sloth has stuck with us and is our transition sloth. He like helps us get from bath to bed, helps us brush our teeth. And he always uses this little Muppet like voice and both of our tempers are so regulated. Like the sloth has become this. And I asked the coach about it and she was like, well, the, the sloth might be more for you than you having to make that funny little voice and having to make this goofy little sloth is actually helping you. And you, once you're regulated, he regulates. Yes. And that for me has become this like perfect picture of how I've told people that about the book as well, that so much of it is not the reason it's not a parenting advice book is because it is about reparenting. It's about you dealing with the stuff behind the stuff. Like you can change what you believe. You can be a perfectionist, control freak, moralist, atheist, because that's the way you were formed. And you're going to have all the same struggles. They're just going to have a different target. And we are seeing like huge amounts of puritanism on the left like in Mm -hmm. the social justice movement, Mm -hmm. we're seeing huge amounts of rigidity and all of that has its roots in the same like dominating colonial. I mean, it it goes back and it is a social thing. Mm -hmm. We were formed that way. We were made and formed to think in black and white terms, to think in good and bad binary and that kind of thing. And so the book is really about, Hey, I'd have been more marketing it as like a, like one of those retro infomercial type things. It's like, are you confused by the fact that you changed your religion and yet you're still saying things like, because I said so to your kids, (laughs) (laughs) you know, here's why. And it's about rooting all of that out because a lot of it is coming from an internal shape of our souls. Liz and I talk all the time about, not wanting to be as fundamentalist on the other side. And it really is refreshing to hear you say that exact thing. Are you confused of why you're continuing to act this way? Because it is so much about reparenting ourselves. Anytime there's like a good quote unquote parenting book, Mm. I always look to see what are they saying about me or the Mm -hmm. parent? Mm. Not what are they saying about the kid? Because everyone wants to, again, control their kids instead of realize how they maybe need to get in quote unquote control of themselves. And I don't like to use the word control in the negative way, but just like, hey, maybe curious with themselves is a much better word than control. Yeah. Get curious with yourself about why you're doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I didn't read parenting advice books 
as research for my book, I talked to real parents about their experience and then read child brain science books. Mm-hmm. And I do mm-hmm. encourage parents like go read some Tina Payne Bryson, go read some Alison Gopnik, go read, you know, Emily Oster, people who have like a very pragmatic application. It's not like you're reading a textbook. But they're talking about brain science because understanding your kids is a joy and a privilege, (laughs) you know, learning about them as human beings who are amazing brains coming online and growing and exploring. If we can be a little more in awe of our kids, we don't want to control them as much. Yeah, I I love that. I just think that's so true. Like, what do we really know? about our kids in each phase that they're in and stage that that they're in right mm-hmm. and how many of their behaviors you were talking about age appropriate sin or like what exactly our kids are doing in their age bracket that makes sense for them and mm-hmm. i think too sometimes when i hear all of this information i start to kind of go inward and i'm like crap like am i still doing some of those things right like we start to kind of freak out like how to make this change we need to make this change now and i was just thinking as you were talking my five-year-old if I'm raising my voice, she'll say, mommy, you're scaring me. And it is such a hard thing to hear. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what is wrong with me? I'm like, where's mom? But I'm, I think, I think back and I think I would never have said that. There's some piece of her that knows that I will work to then change that, right? That she has some yes. sort of influence on. So that just my little sort of sidebar to encourage anyone who's in the background like me going oh my gosh i'm like yelling at my kid like i'm still doing these things right these little these little changes that we're making are making a difference and i'm sure that you talk about that in your book as well this is just a wonderful wonderful i feel like we could talk to you for the entire day the biggest thing that stopped me from yelling anymore in my house was when my five-year-old said i'm very afraid Mm -hmm. and it was like almost a lightning bolt came down on me. It drew a line in the sand that said, do you want your kids to be afraid of you? Sort of stopped. It was like the empathy I had for her fear was what really changed me on the inside. I can picture the moment. Yeah, same. And y'all, the sloth thing entered our life three weeks ago. Like this is such a journey that coach who was helping us was like, just, you need to calm down because parenting is a thousand little things that make up a whole big picture. It is not movies like inside out while they're great, have us very nervous about things like core memories. Hmm. And, but kids brains are very plastic. And there's this one time I had an explosion that I thought my children would never forget. It involved throwing away a toy. It was very dramatic And I brought it up the other day as an example of something I was sorry for, something I regretted. And they were both like, you never did that. And I know it's lodged somewhere in there, but the repair, the openness, if you have exactly, Liz, what you just described of like that openness to where they feel like they can give feedback. And I say that in the book, like if we want to give them feedback about their behavior, we have to accept their feedback about ours. Yes. And that's part of them accepting our feedback toward their behavior. And so one, be encouraged if you have that, if you if you have that open line of communication, that's huge. And 
the act of repairing is powerful. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's better Mm -hmm. that you have had the experience of asking for forgiveness, of seeking repair, rather than getting it all perfect. Because they have unruly emotions and you get to model what to do with them and then what to do when you mess up because they're going to mess up. And they get to understand that I don't have to feel shame and hide when I mess up. If you didn't feel shame and hide behind defenses when you messed up, because my parents, when they messed up, would get defensive Mm -hmm. and justify what they did. They were feeling shame, but they were hiding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I can feel that shame and own and turn it into guilt, accept the guilt for it, and then ask for forgiveness and seek repair, not only does that model good things for them in their minds, it's not an open wound. Yes. They might still be sensitive. It's not get, like the scars tender for a while and whatnot, but a lot of what psychologists will work on you with are things that were were not resolved. Their wounds that you have to then go back and reparent. But that means that a parent could have come in and coached you through that. So when we hurt our kids, we go in and, and help them heal. And yes. it's the unhealed things that mm-hmm. cause the problems. Yes. Right. It's not the ones with the scab and the scars. It's the mm-hmm. ones that are still the open wounds. Yeah. Our play therapist has said to me, stop trying to be such a good mom. Like, Mm -hmm. stop. Like, you're stressing everybody out. Yes. And you're not showing your kid humanity. It's about the relationship. Yeah. You're not modeling this, like, on this pedestal kind of person that has it all together. It gives everybody permission to be human. Yes. Without this big morality around it, that it's bad to be human. Right. And our deepest things that we've carried with us, so many people who are now deconstructing, aren't about the time our parent exploded on us. We might talk about that. That's actually, some of it's about purity culture, but I think a lot of it actually, when I listened to people across a range of experiences, it went back to exactly that. I didn't feel like I could be human. I felt like my humanity was not allowed and it wasn't okay not to be perfect. And that's why I talk so much mm-hmm. in the book about perfectionism is your actual enemy. The reason we are so mean to and unaccepting of the queer community has somewhat to do about biblical sexuality and understandings that a lot about perfectionism mm-hmm. and what we want the perfect life to be. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a more potent driver for our exclusion. Wow. This is so good. I'm going to ask a crazy little question here. But if your kids were to write your obituary in the very far future, what would you hope that they write about what you believed about God, faith, and themselves? I hope they would write, we never wondered if we belonged inside God's family. Mm. Oh, That's huge. I feel like when we ask this question, in various forms, we hear a lot of that. Like, I want my yeah. kids to know that they belong and that they're loved unconditionally. We want to give our kids what we didn't necessarily mm-hmm. get ourselves. What you really believe is what you want your kids to believe. Mm. You can always discover what you believe by what you're teaching your kids or what you hope Mm -hmm. that they learn. And I think, wow, that's like so powerful. And I just think like, how much did I want to belong before Mm -hmm. I behaved? Yeah. Regardless of my behavior, 
I didn't want it to be fragile. I wanted it to be sturdy Hmm. because I think that when we, and you can do this doctrinally as denominations like the PCA do it, or you can do it behaviorally in like more of a Pentecostal version of this, the more narrow you make the sphere of belonging, the more specific the requirements to belong eventually I think it's always dynamic. I think it's always either expanding or shrinking. And I do think eventually it shrinks so small that like even the individual wonders if they're inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My core thing was, do I belong to God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is he going to leave me and or forsake me or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. yeah. And oh, what a great thing that we would want our kids to know. My daughter is the most inherently secure person I've ever met. Like she just was kind of born with this assurance that she's fine. And my job is to not convince her otherwise. (laughs) Um, You know, some kids need more scaffolding and more reassurance by nature, not my daughter. (laughs) And sometimes that manifests as someone who's a little bit arrogant or in your face or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I just think like, if you can maintain that, you're unstoppable. The world is going to work so hard to take that from you. And you're going to get messages that you're going to be tempted to internalize, not just from me, but from everybody. But if we can maintain and protect this, and expand it and really like focus on applying it to other things. You can do anything. Like when we have these dreams for our kids, because everybody wants their kid to, you know, have a career that's fulfilling, have great relationships, strong relationships, like the stuff of life. And it's like, you know, there's actually some spiritual, emotional, mental, cognitive things that make that more likely Mm -hmm. (laughs) and obsessive compulsive obedience is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Throw that one out. Yeah, uh, not helpful. Uh, well, thanks, Becca. So where can people find you if they want to buy your book, which is probably going to happen the second they click off? <laughs> <laughs> please, please do. My website, beccamcneil.com, has a, a link to book. And it, if you prefer to buy it on bookshop.org, if you prefer to buy it on Amazon and have it there in a day, if you want to go to the Erdman's website and buy it straight from the publisher, whatever, your purchasing priorities are, you can find a link there. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. There's so much more I feel like we could talk about, so we might have to have you on again, but this was just, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time. We know time is precious when your kids are at school. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it guys. This is super fun. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode on the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on both of our websites, estherjoygets.com and elizabethpetters.com, as well as our brand new website, deconstructingmamas.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please leave us a review where you listen and especially tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.